Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Uh, it's mango season right now. Does anybody have a mango tree? Yeah, yeah. We get we get the we have one in our backyard. It's funny because our um, our neighbors still bring mangoes to us. Like, we don't know who it is. You know, we'll just wake up, and the door handle feels heavy from the inside. And you open it, and there's just this bag of mangoes on the front door. And we're like, I guess we'll just give them to somebody else because we're trying to give ours away. Uh, so it's mango season. That's something that's interesting. Also, things are continuing to change in our country. Thank you for continuing to wear masks. We are going to update you in the, in the coming week about where we're going specifically with the mask situation, and so we appreciate you continuing to wear them. Thank you for that. But I am excited today, not only because we get hot dogs after the service, but because today we start a new series in the prophets. Oh, you're not as excited as I am. Okay. All right. Oh, there we go. There we go. All right. The call of the prophets. Um, now, the prophets are a section of scripture that is 16 books long, 16 books long, maybe 17, depending on whether you count Lamentations or not. But, but in this section of Scripture, we have the major prophets, which are the longer books of the Bible, longer prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then we have the minor prophets, which are 12 different books, and those are much shorter. And as we go through the F260 reading plan, if you're doing that, we if you're not, we'd invite you to be part of the F260 reading plan. Um, as we're doing that, this next five weeks, we're going to be in the prophets. And so what we thought we would do is explore the prophets on Sunday morning so that in your personal reading, you understand better what we're getting at uh, and, and the two are connected. And so we're going to be jumping into Isaiah for just one Sunday, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, each for one Sunday, um, and then Hosea as well for one Sunday. Now, if you look at these prophets, one thing to realize is these aren't made-up stories. These aren't metaphors or allegories. These are actual people who lived and were given a mission by God. I think we actually have a map where you can see the different places that the prophets ministered in Israel and Judah. Now, some of them were ministering in the northern kingdom of Israel, and then after the split, some of them were ministering in the southern kingdom of God's people called Judah. But you'll see their names up there. These were real people that lived during a real time and had a real mission from God. Now, the reason the series is called The Call of the Prophets is because usually every book begins or somewhere near the beginning it says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah. And that is the moment where the prophet is being called by God for a special mission. So the call of the prophets. But then that special mission almost always means that the prophet is going to go out and call a people back to God. So not only was the prophet called to a special mission, but his mission was to go and call people back to God. And most of the time, that was the people of God in Israel and Judah. Some people, like Jonah, were called to go to Nineveh, which was in the country of Assyria. So he was called to go beyond God's people and call them 
to repentance. So that's where we get the phrase, the call of the prophets. But today we start off with kind of a bizarre one. I mean, all the prophets are apocalyptic literature, and so there's all these weird things and symbols that are happening, and it's hard to understand what's going on. But today is particularly interesting because we're looking at the book of Hosea, the call of Hosea. And why it's interesting is because the whole book in and of itself is just quite scandalous. What Hosea is called to do by God is go, and I'm going to put it to you bluntly, he's called to go and marry a woman who would cheat on him repeatedly. He's called to enter into that marriage knowing that that's what's going to happen. That's the call of Isaiah. It's really a strange book, but there's so much in it for us from God if we'll pay attention and listen to his word. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read Hosea chapter 1, okay? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be present in the preaching of your word, that as we look um, at this literature that's over 2,500 years old, but living and active, you would bring it to life in our hearts. That you would show us more about who you are and who you're calling us to be. We thank you for the prophet Hosea and his calling, the calling on his life and what he's calling us to today. And all God's people said, amen. Let's read Hosea 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Barry, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joahash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So he went and married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in Jezreel Valley. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Loruhamah. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. I will certainly take them away. After Gomer had weaved, had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The word of the Lord. Have you ever loved somebody that didn't love you back? Or, or have you ever given loves to somebody that wasn't returned? Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. And his theory behind the book was that everybody communicates and receives love in different ways. And so sometimes when people are giving and receiving love, it's merely a miscommunication. 
because there's different ways to give and receive love, right? You, you can spend quality time. You can give gifts by physical touch or words of affirmation or acts of service. Those are the five love languages that Gary Chapman gets at. And his point was to help with miscommunicated love. So that if one person gives love by physical touch and the other person gives love by quality time, he's helped them translate their love that's given and their love that's received. So sometimes that love that we give and that love that's not returned is just a matter of miscommunication. But sometimes it's a little more painful because sometimes you get those butterflies in your stomach and you catch feelings for someone and you got to tell them or you're going to die, right? you got to tell them how you feel. I remember that moment in 2004 when I had that realization that I had to tell Virginia that I was into her. And I sat in the front seat and she was in the driver's seat and I said something like, I think sometimes in my feelings about you at times, and I feel that way. She's like, what are you talking about? I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, well, why was I so nervous? Because when when you tell someone how you feel, it is nerve-wracking to think that they might not feel the same way. They might not return the love. And if you've ever been a kid and you had a crush on someone at school and you went to go tell them, you know how nerve-wracking it was, and you know if they didn't tell you back, it was so crushing, and it was so painful. But, but there's another kind of love when someone doesn't love you back that's the most painful, and that's when someone says that they love you, and when they commit themselves to you, but then they find another lover. Then they find another lover. Not once, but over and over and over that, that is painful. That is painful to give that kind of love and then not receive that kind of love. And we would not wish that situation on anybody. Except that's the situation that God called Hosea into. God called Hosea into that very kind of situation. He, he calls Hosea to marry a woman that's going to be an unfaithful bride over and over and over again. Look at what he says in Chapter 1, verse 2a that we just read. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. That is, Hosea, go find a woman. He finds Gomer. Go find a woman who is not going to be faithful to you in the marriage and is probably going to have children that are not yours. Painful. Why would God call Hosea to do that? Why would he call this prophet to go live out this story? The reason is it's because it was the story that God saw Israel living out. Look at the reason that he gives at the end of this verse. He says, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. If you can put it to the next slide. Then he says... For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. What God is saying is, my people are unfaithful to me. My people are cheating on me. My people who I love and have committed myself to, and they've committed themselves to me, they have found other lovers. 
So Hosea, I want you to go live out this story with an unfaithful woman because I want to call the people to see how they're living with me and turn back How was Israel being unfaithful? What, what, what did that mean? Well, throughout the book of Hosea, we're going to touch down just in some spots so you can see, but the first way was that they were disregarding God. Specifically, they were disregarding his commands rather than deepening their knowledge of God. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. Here, uh, there is no truth. There is no, go ahead and go to the next slide. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. Now that language right there, that's the language of the Ten Commandments. And what God is saying is my people are being unfaithful to me because it's not even like they're trying to live out the commands of God. They just don't care. They're just disregarding them. They're disobeying. They have no understanding. Now, here's the interesting thing. God doesn't put this language like, I have a to-do list for you to do, and you didn't do it. What God says is, these commands are part of being in relationship with me. Your obedience is connected to knowing me. It's not just that, they didn't cross off all the check marks on the to-do list. It's that part of knowing God is actually obeying him and following him, and they were disregarding God. In fact, it had got so crazy with their disobedience that later in the book, God says, it's as if I showed up at your worship assembly with my commands, and if I brought the commands of myself into your worship assembly, you would be like, We've never seen those before. We don't even know what those are. Those are strange to us. Israel had gotten so far away from their loving relationship with the Lord. And look who's to blame. In the next verse, verses 4 through 6 in chapter 4, he says, For my case is against you priests. You will stumble by day. The prophet also stumble with you by night. Now, the priests were like the teachers. They were the people that were supposed to instruct the people who God was and what he had called them to do, and they weren't doing it. And the prophets at that time, many of them were not calling the people back to God. They were telling the people what they wanted to hear. Next verse. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge I will reject you from serving as my priests. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your sons. See, see, part of knowing God is obeying him. And the reason that we're called to obey him is so that we can represent who he is in the world. We follow the purity of his commands because he's pure. We follow his righteous commands because he's righteous. We follow his loving commands because he's love. And as we live those out, it's as if we are representing God before the watching world. But Israel said, we're good. We're going to do our own thing. And so God said, you are no longer representing me to the watching world. Now maybe there's something for us in this accusation. In this accusation that they were disregarding the commands of God. 
does the church know the commands of God? Does the church know what God has called us to do, how he has called us to live, what he wants us to do to obey? That part about the priests, the teachers, I take a little personally because what it's saying is it's, it's on me to teach you what God commands. And, and as I look around our country and our world, I, I, I get a little scared because I notice that there's a lot of other teachers that are exciting. There's a lot of other teachers that can get you riled up. But the question remains, are they teaching the commands of God? I mean, if the commands of God showed up at our church or showed up at other churches, would people be like, what are those? We've never seen those before. And if that were the case, what does that mean about who they're worshiping? If the commands of God show up and people don't know what the commands of God are, then what are they doing at church? Who are they worshiping? The call for us is to know God and know his commands. And I know some people say, well, pastor, what about legalism? We don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to say people's identity is in their ability to obey. We don't want to get into performance Christianity. Of course we don't, but here's the thing. Obedience isn't legalism. Following God and loving him by implementing his commands in your life is not legalism. It's God's love language. Obedience is God's love language. If you know that God has loved you, you know that he has saved you, you know that through Jesus Christ, by faith, through grace, you are his, all your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven, how do you respond? Trust and obey. Obedience is God's love language. But Israel was disregarding the commands of the Lord because they didn't really want God they wanted something else. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Chapter 4, verse 12 through 13 shows us that was what was underneath their hearts was really this idolatry. My people consult their wooden idols and their divining rods inform them. For a spirit of promiscuity leads them astray. They act promiscuously in disobedience to their God. Next slide. They sacrifice on mountaintops and they burn offerings on the hills and under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is pleasant. And so your daughters act promiscuously and your daughter-in-laws commit adultery. Okay, here's what's going on. At this time, there was a pagan god called Baal. Now, if you're southern, you just say Baal, like that. But we'll say Baal. It was, it was a god of the pagans, and that worship of that god, Baal, had infiltrated Israel. And the reason it had infiltrated, the reason that it was attractive was because Baal was the god of fertility, meaning he was the God who would bless your crops. He was the God who would make your cattle multiply. He was the God who would touch a woman's womb to give her many children. And the Israelites said, 
that that's what we want. We, we want to be fertile. We, we want our land to grow. We want our cattle to multiply. So that, let's worship that God. That God has the good life in his hands. And so they, there were poles that were constructed called Asherah poles where they would worship the God of Baal around these poles. And there were temples where they would gather to worship this God. And, and, and Baal worship was kind of bizarre. In the middle of the worship, there was like sexual orgies and prostitution that happened as part of the worship of Baal. And God's people participated in it. Why? Well, there was something about this God that they said, that God holds the good life in his hands. So rather than worshiping God, the God of Israel, the one true God, Yahweh, they gave themselves over to idolatry. In a similar way, we as the people of God are always tempted by the idols of our age. Because as we look, we see other things that seem to hold the good life. If I could just get my hands on some cold, hard cash, life would be good, right? That was a little too loud. (laughs) If I could just get enough stuff, then my life would be valuable. But sometimes it's a little bit bit deeper than that. Sometimes we, we go, you know, if I just had more influence on other people, if I just had a little bit more pleasure in my life, right? This is Memorial Day weekend where we celebrate our freedom, and sometimes we can turn freedom into an idol that we worship. We don't want to have any commitments to anybody. We want to do what we want, when we want to do it. But here's the thing. You know those things become idols in your life when you abandon living for God in that very area so you can hold on to that idol. That's the litmus test for us. I've got to get more influence. I'll do anything I can to get more influence rather than using the influence I have for Jesus Christ. If I could just have some more pleasure in my life, life would be good. In fact, I've got to get pleasure at all costs, so I'm not going to walk through anything painful in my walk with Jesus Christ i got to have freedom. If I could just get some more freedom in my life so I'm not going to make any commitments to anybody, I'm not going to make any commitments to church or any of God's people or even to God because I really worship freedom. You see how it works? We are in danger always of giving ourselves over to idols and worshiping them rather than worshiping the God who saved us. Now, here's the scary thing. Look what he says there at the end of that verse. And so your daughters act promiscuously and your daughter-in-laws commit adultery. What is being said there is the danger of worshiping idols is that the next generation will look more like the idol than they will like God. So if we give ourselves over to idols, we are in danger that those idols will infiltrate the next generation and, they will have, and the next generation will have no reference point for God. See, what happened was, as Israel gave themselves over to promiscuity, their children were shaped by that. So their daughters began acting promiscuously, and their daughter-in-laws committed adultery. Now, maybe there's some reflection for us there as well. Millennials, 
I know you guys get a bad rap, right? Everybody likes to dump on millennials. Eventually, you'll be older, and you'll be able to dump on the younger generations, too. But, but let me say this. For folks that are older than millennials, maybe there's, an, there's some space for us to examine whether we have been idolatrous in some ways that has then shaped the way the younger generations think about God? What if they are just living out the very things that we have trained them to do when it comes to God? We must reflect. We must find out if we ourselves have been idolatrous. And younger folks, as you grow up, think about your own idolatry. In the moment, it feels pleasurable, it feels freeing, and yet at the same time, it will shape the younger generations for generations to come. Not only did Israel disregard God's commands, not only were they idolatrous, but they formed political alliances rather than relying on relationship with God. In eight, chapter 8, verse 8 through 10, it says, Israel was swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey going off on its own. Ephraim, that's Israel, has paid for love even though they hire lovers among the nations, I will now round them up, and they will begin to decrease in number under the burden of the kings and leaders. What's happening here is Israel is looking at the political situation in this time, and they're going, we've got to have allies. So if Egypt in the moment is a good ally, we'll go and submit to Egypt. But as soon as Assyria becomes a better ally, we'll form an alliance with them to the disregard of their relationship with God? Have they forgotten that God was the one who saved them from Egypt when they had no power and strength of their own? They're not called to form alliances and be influenced by the nations that are surrounding them. They're called by God to be a light to those nations. And ultimately, God sees this as breaking covenant with him And those very nations that they form alliances with will ultimately come and capture them, take them out of the promised land, bring them into captivity, where they will live in exile. From God's perspective, it's quite painful. It's quite painful to look at his unfaithful people. Just as Hosea has married a woman of promiscuity and over over and over again, she has been unfaithful. So God's people have been unfaithful over and over again. But here's the good news that we get from Hosea. E.K. Bailey says that though sin breaks God's heart, it can't break God's love. Sin breaks God's heart but it does not break God's love. God's love is unfailing in the midst of the worst unfaithfulness. God's love is unfailing amidst the worst unfaithfulness. See, God tells his people that because they've broken covenant with him, they will be captured and they will be brought into exile. But before that even happens, God is planning for the day that he will restore his people to himself and he will enter into a relationship of love with them and he will publicly declare that love for his people 
for the whole world to see. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they will no longer be remembered by their names. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. On that day, I will respond. This is the Lord's declaration. I will respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth, and I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on Lo-Ru-Ama. I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people, and he will say, you are my God. Everything that's happened to Israel as part of God's discipline and judgment will be reversed because God's love is unfailing in the midst of their unfaithfulness. God's love is unfailing. He will speak tenderly to his bride. He will erase her idolatry. He will shower her with his reconciliation and his righteousness and justice and love, and they will know who he is. That is good news for you. Because when we sin, it does break God's heart, but it doesn't break God's love. It breaks his heart, but it doesn't break God's love. What that means for you is if you ever wrestle with, I don't think God could love me. That may be in your head, but it's not in God's heart. God's love for you doesn't depend on springs out of who he is. Springs out of his faithfulness, out of his commitment. So even right now, if you are living a life of unfaithfulness to the Lord, the Lord may be planning for you a future relationship of love with him. He is still committed. He loves based on who he is. And so then the call for us In the midst of that, as we recognize our unfaithfulness, as we recognize our disregard for his commands and and our idolatry, is to turn to faithfulness. God's love is meant to call us out of unfaithfulness to faithfulness. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Israel, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Leave your idols behind. Leave those alliances behind that get in the way of your relationship with God. Take words with you. What that means is we can't just be sad about our sin when we get caught We need to have a deeper understanding of how our sin breaks God's heart because as we understand that, it transforms the way we see our sin and opens us up to receive God's love in a deep level. God's love for 
God's love calls for our faithfulness. It calls for us to return, but ultimately to know him, to be in a relationship with him. The verse that we said earlier from Hosea 6, chapter 6, says, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What that means is the, the, the point of the sacrificial system, the point of sacrificing and atoning for your sins by offering a lamb or a bull wasn't the ceremony. The goal of the ceremony was that you know God, that you might know his faithful love, that you might live in relationship with him and know what it means to be his people. And, and that's why the two most frequently words used in the book of Hosea are return being called back to faithfulness means to return to God and to know him. But ultimately, for us on this side of the cross, it is a call to Jesus. It's a call to Jesus. See, as we, we look at this story, and as we know the good news of Jesus, we might t- be tempted to say, wow, um, Jesus is a little bit like Hosea. But that would be to get it completely back. As we look at Hosea's love for Gomer, we see that Hosea is just a little bit like Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we had no love for him, he came to love us. Have you ever loved somebody? and not been loved in return. That is what Jesus has experienced as he's come to die for you. But as we see his great love, as we see that the cross is actually his love language to us, it fills us with his love so that our sins are forgiven and we become reconciled with the God Friends, let your unfaithfulness to God sink in. But let his faithful love to you sink deep. He loves you. This book is just a small picture of his faithfulness to us, even when we fail. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.